In January of 2014, Dame Inga Beale became the first female CEO of Lloyd's of London with the daunting task of modernization. Beale inherited arguably the most iconic insurance brand in the world, made up of 99 syndicates with operations in over 200 countries and gross written premiums of more than £35 billion. Beale spoke to Michael Coles, founder and managing partner of Sedent, and host of the podcast Sedent Chronicles, about her legacy at Lloyd's and what ideas she has for the industry today. When I first had the idea of launching this podcast, I had the vision that you would be the one person I'd really want to interview, mainly because this podcast is going to be about strategy and about innovation and about how CEOs make the best, most effective decisions based on the circumstances that they're in. And I feel like you've been in a lot of situations and been handed a lot of tricky situations to sort of manage and, and navigate through. So I'm really excited that you're here today, Inga. So thank you for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Good to be here. So for those that don't know who you are, you have most recently been the CEO of Lloyds of London. There might be quite a few people who are listening to this who might not be too familiar with Lloyds. And everyone knows it as the oldest insurance market in the world. Uh, its reputation is very well known, but it's a very complicated market in many ways. Can we start there? Well, it is really a market, and that's what people have got to get their head around, first of all, that it's not one unitary company. And it's got a mutual aspect to it, which means you've got all these competitors operating in a market. And sometimes they share risk, so they're working together. Sometimes they're fiercely competitive with each other. But fundamentally, they all contribute to a fund that sits at the centre of the market, the mutual fund, which is there to support any customer that has a claim, has a loss and needs to claim on their insurance policy, and there isn't enough capital in the syndicate, as we call them, those businesses that operate in Lloyd's, if they fail, there's a central mutual fund that will be there to pay their claim. And that's what makes it totally and utterly unique, that you've got competitors operating in such a way that in some way they collaborate and they have this mutuality. And the other thing that's really unique about it is that it does the stuff that other insurers don't want to do. Give us an example. So it was always there. If a risk was too unknown to quantify, and if we go back in time, such as the first satellite that went off into space, you know, a regular insurance company would look at that risk. They say, we've got no data. We do not know the chance of it failing. How on earth can we get the price right? How can we insure it and take it on? Lloyd's has always been there to take on those risks because it shares the risk amongst various players without necessarily having all the data of the, um, you know, the actuarial data that many insurers need. Why is that? Why does Lloyd's feel comfortable enough to take on risks that they don't have any understanding of data or prior precedent or experience in underwriting something like that before? Well, it's got this magic of mixing the entrepreneurial spirit people with courage, people who can make decisions. And that is the DNA of the market. And that's why it's always been there, the first to ensure any risk, any new risk that came along. Now, sometimes risks become, they're just so commonplace that while Lloyd's might have been the first to ensure, for instance, the automobile, they were the first to offer motor insurance, they really don't do much 
automobile motor insurance. And they don't do auto insurance because it's become so mainstream that other insurers have now taken it. So Lloyd's continues to evolve and it's just totally in its DNA. But do you think that Lloyd's is evolving at the same pace where the world is evolving today? Well, it strikes me that the world is moving probably quicker than most insurers are. When I look around and I look at the changing landscape out there, even in my time, so I've been working in insurance for 37 and a bit years, and I think about how slow the pace seemed to be in the 80s, 90s. You know, we didn't really change much. And the risks didn't really seem to be changing. But now the risks are so different. The intangible nature of everything that's going on, the political turmoil that's going on in so many countries, the trade wars, the insecurity about the stability of nations, the immigration that's going on, the climate crisis, that with it will bring all sorts of things like health epidemics and all sorts of new diseases in parts of the world that we never thought about. That is the pace of that change that I think is unprecedented. And I'm not sure insurance in general is keeping up with it. You're not sure? I mean, I think we both know it's not. (laughs) I do like to think that there's somebody out there or some real creative entrepreneurs that are building solutions for some of these new risks. There are thousands of startups out there. There's got to be people amongst them who are looking at those new risks and coming up with solutions. But to do that, let's just talk about it, because in the past, if you were to come up with a solution, you'd be an underwriter in the box at Lloyd's and you'd find capital and you start providing paper. I mean, these companies that you say that are trying to find solutions to risk, they need the capital and they need the underwriting expertise. Why wouldn't Lloyd's, having been established, why can't they go ahead and be the ones? Why does it have to be these independent people in garages starting up? Why can't it be Lloyd's be the one to go ahead and tackle things like autonomous vehicles, cloud computing, You mentioned political risks, supply chain risks. Well, actually, in some of the new risks, Lloyd's is by far the global leader. So if we think about what technology has done to all businesses and the risk of cyber threats, Lloyd's is the leading place in the world to go for cyber insurance. So it's got a 25% market share globally. So it does do all these new things, and it does it very well. I think what we're struggling with is in this world where capital is getting closer and closer to the risk and the capital providers are thinking about how they can get closer, they're hiring the experts that used to be within the traditional insurance carriers and the traditional syndicates at Lloyd's. So now you've got people who are hungry for data and who want to understand that the risk that they're taking on. And I think in the past, a lot of capital would have come into Lloyd's and trusted those underwriters to be the decision makers. We've spent billions on modelling. So now modelling for some risks is commonplace and everybody has access to them. It's this sort of data explosion that we've had that's now driving almost all capital providers to want to do their own modelling to a certain extent to understand the risk they're taking on rather than just give the capital over to somebody else. Let's get back into this idea of product because if you go down the list and you ask the top risk managers in the world today of the largest corporations what their largest risks are in the world, and I think even Lloyd's has published something like this in the past, only a few of the top 10 risks are actually insurable or have a product from the insurance industry. That's true. And some of the surveys that are done specifically of risk-managed businesses say that 
insurance now provides solutions for less than 10% of the risks that they face. And that should be a worry for us all. But the biggest thing that I think we need to think about is what the actual product is. Because if you think about the core insurance product, it hasn't fundamentally changed in hundreds of years. And I continue to be dismayed at some of the stories I hear, whether it's somebody who's lost a loved one and is trying to claim on some life assurance, or if it's through to some big facilities and physical facility that's been damaged in some way, there's an uncertainty of what you're going to get paid out. And I get very, very concerned that we are selling a product with so many caveats exclusions, complex terms and conditions that we are not providing the security of protection that we were basically there to do in the old days. Because we've become so entangled with legal ramifications, awards, payouts that are rewarded by judges that, you know, make people very nervous. And we have to fundamentally look at Are we delivering that very core product we're meant to be delivering, which is enabling human progress? It's enabling businesses to invest in new things. It's enabling people to get on with their lives. That's one of the biggest fears I have is that we're not evolving the core product. We're selling uncertainty of protection rather than certainty of protection. Who is going to be able to solve that problem? I don't know. When I was at Lloyd's, I had a little group working on this and we actually had some very nice, generous consulting firms lend us some people for free. And I'm afraid they gave up and said it's impossible because everything is so... There were so many parties interested with vested interest that I don't think they're going to disrupt themselves. Our only hope is that perhaps one of the new markets where insurance isn't that embedded... I look to those markets as the place where perhaps this insurance product will be turned on its head. Lloyd's is a $35 billion surplus, policy or surplus size. You know, one of the things that I've noticed is it is dwarfed by tenfold to the captive insurance market. And for those that are listening, captive insurance, self-insurance, large corporations, and that's been going on for the, you know, the last 40 years or so, But isn't that what they're doing? Is they're writing themselves their own policies that are flexible, that are covering them for exactly what they want? And and why hasn't Lloyd's been able to adapt to that? Because if they had, that $300 billion opportunity of the captive insurance market wouldn't exist today. Mm. And it would be, Lloyd's would be $335 billion. Yeah, and it's not just, of course, true for Lloyd's. It's true for a lot of traditional risk carriers who've been measuring risk in a certain way. And a lot of these captives are far larger than many of the insurers or reinsurers that are out there in the world. So I don't think it's a Lloyd's issue per se. But when I look at the specialist nature of risk, and I think about where Lloyd's was positioning itself, say 100 years ago, 150 years ago, and I think this is important for anyone who's looking at their strategy to look at the market they're playing in. So probably 100 years ago or so, we would have said that the Lloyd's market had a perhaps a 90% market share of that market. Now, the recent studies that were done in the London market show that that could be 5 7 or 9%, depending on what the baseline market is you're looking at. 
But that goes to show how much more competition there has been out there in the market. Everybody is looking to save money. I can remember meeting business leaders of diverse businesses such as transporting concrete around in big trucks. And the guy who owned this business said, I've got to set my own insurance company up because you're screwing me so much on my insurance premium. I'm going to do this myself. I can do this better. Now, some of them, he actually ended up failing after a few years, but a lot of them saw that they could actually do that more efficiently themselves. And if they've got the the balance sheet size to do it, then they should do it. And I wouldn't feel concerned that Lloyd's is the size it is. It's there to do the real new risks rather than necessarily all of the risks that are out there in the world. But... What we're saying is Lloyd's has the expertise for understanding and underwriting these risks. What we're saying is here is that that companies, corporations, if they go about going to the commercial market outside the marketplace, they're foregoing that expertise for things like product flexibility, things like price and expense. Well, I think they're getting, they might not have the expertise in-house, but they will be getting expertise from elsewhere whether it's an intermediary or an advisory company, there is a lot of expertise out there. And one of the other things that we were looking at at Lloyd's was where the growth in just the commercial insurance market is going to happen in the future. And that's going to be in places where Lloyd's wasn't traditionally strong, such as Asia. So we've got half the world's population living in Asia. That is where the future of commercial insurance is going to be in terms of growth. So you've got to say, well, the old model was everything would come to London because that's where the expertise was. But of course, that model has completely changed over the decades. So you've got expertise building up around the world. And I think five years ago, there was $5 billion of capacity in China itself with the expertise that could take that risk on. And that's the changing landscape that all of these insurers are faced with. And that's why when I was at Lloyd's, we were looking at making sure we could have access to those new markets where that growth in the future is going to come from. So Lloyd's as a marketplace, how does it get access to a marketplace like Asia? It still has a lot of business that comes via the traditional broker intermediary who brings the business to London. Bringing it, I say it in probably it's actually sort of digitally carried. It's not really being brought physically, but the risk is coming to meet the expertise in London. But more and more, you've got centres of expertise around the world. Singapore was one of the early offices for Lloyd's. You've got something, you know, like 25 syndicates operating there now. In China, I think over 30 syndicates operating in China with underwriting authority and knowledge. You've got Dubai, the DIFC in Dubai focused on the Middle East market. You've got to have some of that talent and expertise sitting where your customers are. Lloyd's today is going through what people are calling a strategic plan or strategic review of the business, it almost seems like there wasn't a strategic plan or a strategic review of the business when you were CEO. But go back to 2014 when you were asked to to come aboard as CEO. What was the business looking like then? What were the challenges that you were facing? Yeah, well, there's always been a strategy at Lloyd's. I mean, the regulators for one have demanded it. So every year the strategy gets updated. So it's not a new thing to be looking at the strategy. But the big thing when I was starting was the introduction of technology. 
moving from paper to digital. Because of the uniqueness of that, the physical marketplace being in London, a lot of business was still traded on paper. Negotiations of multi-billion dollar contracts took place and wet ink stamps were put to paper. And if you were to go to other sectors, they'd look on and in, perhaps in disbelief that it was still being carried out like that. So the biggest challenge was this modernization, this digitalization, because over a couple of decades, various attempts had failed. So that was the biggest challenge to do was to move it into the digital age. And that was a lot about electronic placing so that actual contract negotiation and confirming cover but a lot of it was all about the support sources feeding data through so no re-entry of data you know one touch data was aim throughout all of that reading complicated contracts translating it using artificial intelligence into data points that then could be collated and aggregated and things like that so there was a lot of work around that There was a whole piece of work around going into the new markets. So we opened up in several new markets because that's where the growth is, is going to be in the future. I felt that we needed to reinvigorate the art of innovating. I think Lloyd's had got to a stage where we'd been clamping down a bit on the ability of underwriters to take on some of the new risks and that had probably got a bit too tight and we needed to relax that and make sure that there was an innovative spirit while, of course, still making sure that there was profit at the centre of what was happening. So the Lloyd's Lab was launched, which was basically bringing startups, making selections of these various startups, giving them a 10-week opportunity to see if their ideas would fly with the market. And because it was physically based within the market, they had face-to-face contact regularly with the underwriters and they could see if their ideas were going to fly. And they only had 10 weeks, so there was time pressure on that. So that was about bringing innovation into the heart of the market. There were two other factors that really were at play. One was around solvency and the new solvency regime that came into Europe and the impact that that had on regulators' assessment of capital requirements and not only regulators' assessment but rating agency assessment of capital requirements. And they were looking at the market as a collective in a way that had not really been done before because in the past it had been very much considered as individual businesses but more and more the regulators and the rating agencies were looking at the market as a whole and saying for it to be sustainable you've got to aggregate everything and there was a big big shift when I was there to say the central corporation's role was not just about ensuring enough capital there to pay the claims but they wanted the businesses themselves to be profitable. And in the past, that had not been the role of the corporation. It was up to the individual capital and the individual investors to make their call on how much profit they required, etc. So that was a big change. And then the last thing was, I realised that in order to make sure that Lloyd's was going to be innovative and sustainable into the future, we had to start attracting new talent because we weren't attracting tech talent. We weren't attracting new types of people with different ideas. We weren't attracting people who reflected the new customers and the new business we were going after. So we had to have a big effort at making sure that we had a modern, flexible work culture that was inclusive. I had five strategic priorities. So when you came in, you did an assessment yourself and you saw that 
technology was number one in terms of automating the processes. You had to evaluate new markets for growth outside the insurance industry, outside the London market. You had to look at the solvency regimes of uh, and the rating agencies, etc. Uh, talent as well was another big aspect for you. And innovation was your third last point there as well as with the Lloyd's Lab. If you look back and sort of wanted to say, how do you think you f- you did across those five? Yeah, well, I mean, I feel immensely proud of the technology and the digitalization. There were so many skeptics, a wall of skeptics, that it could never be done. And at the beginning, I was even daunted by the task. I didn't know how we were going to get thousands and thousands of people who don't work for the same organization to work together. How were we going to get the brokers who were arch rivals to work together and use the same platform? It seemed daunting, but we managed it. And the latest figures are that there's been 50% electronic placement of risks in the market, and the aim is to get to 80% by the end of 2019. I'm just absolutely amazed that we managed to achieve what we did within budget and most of the delivery of the modules were done within the time frames set as well but the biggest pleasure I suppose out of all of that was the market buy-in and I knew we'd reached a tipping point when we'd been sort of forcing the change on the market and then we had CEOs in the market say I'll take ownership for this work I want to head up that one and then I knew we'd reached the tipping point and it was going to be more plain sailing because we've got the market actually bought in that we could do this. You know, it strikes me that across those five and technology being the number one on on your mind right there, every CEO of an insurance organization across the world is dealing with those five. Pressing. I mean, they're probably the five of everyone. How do you go about actually tackling those challenges like technology? So you mentioned how proud you were. What are the baby steps you take along that journey? And our mantra on the digitalization journey was step by step. (laughs) So first of all, you've got to hire the right people. So I knew that I needed to surround myself by the very best people. So what did you do? When and hired people. And where did you find them from? From the market, from outside the market, from retail space, from telecommunications, you name it, I wanted to try and bring some talent in that wasn't from the insurance market who would think at things differently, particularly around data management. So we hired different types of people. We got really robust project managers linked with sort of insurance experts as well. So we had to make sure we had insurance expertise because we needed that credibility with the market. Otherwise, they would have laughed at us. But it was very much step by step was our mantra But we did go out and we built a massive blueprint, a massive vision for what the market could look like. But once we'd done that, we realised that, A, it was too complicated to sell to anyone. Nobody was going to buy into this and way too complicated to actually deliver. So out of the, I think, the 15 strands we actually built in our wonderful blueprint, we focused on four. And that was one of the winning reasons was that we actually narrowed down, narrowed down, narrowed down to what we could deliver on. When I talk to CEOs like yourself about technology and a transformation in the insurance industry, there's this idea of, you know, build, buy or rent. So what did you decide to do? We tried to find a core product that was out there that we could enhance. So we didn't have to 
really build anything from scratch. People always think that there's something so unique about what they do that there's nothing out there. But we found small organizations that had built the basis of what we could then take and scale up. So nothing was really built totally from scratch. We used existing product or fairly new technology that had been introduced by people. But you talked at the beginning here about how Lloyd's needs to dramatically innovate to be able to accommodate the future risks and the ideas of sort of you were saying it was confined. Weren't you building technology for an existing process? Yes, but we had to. It was almost as though we had to move from last century because that's how things were and and it wasn't until we managed to get everything on some sort of digital platform that we could then do all these sort of add-ons and all the rest but none of the add-ons and anything that anyone was investing in themselves because remember a lot of the businesses they are standalone businesses so they're doing their own thing particularly when it comes to product so we weren't focused on the product innovation itself at that time we were focused on putting the plumbing in, making sure that all the data could flow seamlessly and there could be a secure audit trail and all the rest of it. It wasn't focused on product innovation. It's only when, with the introduction of the Lloyd's Lab, once we'd done the core plumbing, that we then started to focus on more product innovation. And so in your team around technology, you mentioned bringing outside people, but across those five of priorities, who did you surround yourself with? to help you achieve those five? How did you measure the success along the journey there? Well, I mean, on each one had their own metrics and each one of my executive committee owned one of them. So my COO owned the modernization, the CFO owned the whole solvency, mm-hmm. the CUO owned all the product innovation and the profitability around underwriting, the HR director owned the people and the culture. Yeah. So that was how I did it, was to make sure that right sitting at the top team were those people who had skin in the game, they knew exactly what their KPIs were going to be. Yeah. Let's talk about a little bit about the innovation aspect. You launched the Lloyd's Lab when you were there. That's one of the big achievements that you have. A lot of those cohorts of companies are developing fantastic solutions for the future. In some cases, prototypes. And in some cases, they're just building. And I've got experience myself with early companies and how long that journey is. What about the largest partnerships in the world? What about the massive data and analytics companies out there? Where are those partnerships happening within Lloyd's? We had quite a few discussions with the big data companies. What we found, and one of the big companies actually tried to start doing insurance in the UK, and they realized that it wasn't going to be for them because of the regulatory environment. And I think that's where we always tended to fall down was because these data companies want to own all the data and they want to own the black box and they don't want to give the carrier any of this data. The regulators come along and I've had many conversations with the International Association of Insurance Supervisors about this who say, well, the people we regulate are the carriers. Therefore, you carriers have to make sure you know exactly what the data is and how you're using it to price risk. And they're saying, well, that's being owned by the data company. So there's this big issue right now around how the the universe of insurance more broadly is going to be regulated if you've got data and algorithms and everything else that goes with sort of pricing risk that's sitting outside of the usual or traditional carriers and in, in an unregulated environment. Yeah. So you were innovating across these five strategic priorities 
but you must have come up against a lot of challenges and blocks in the road. I mean, what were those biggest blocks? What were the biggest things you were constantly having to battle to be able to advance these five priorities? Some businesses are very technical. In other words, they're using machines to do their processes and build things. Our business is all about people. (laughs) So you find usually that it's the people that are the blockages. And that can be for various reasons. It can be fear. It can be lack of knowledge. It can be just not wanting to change. And so that's why we had to spend such a lot of time in consulting with the market. And when I first got to Lloyd's, in the past, Lloyd's had tended to push things through the market without really consulting with the market. They would call, something would go out called a consultation, but the market would say it doesn't really feel like a consultation. What I wanted to do was to make sure that we were truly consulting with the market. Now, that took a lot longer. So while I was having to ask the board for patience to say, look, I believe this is the right way, and they're banging the table, so you've got to do this quicker, I'm saying no, because all the attempts have failed in the past. The only way we can do it is to include thousands and thousands of people in the consultation. And it did seem very painful, and it did seem slow, but of course, once we'd, as I said, reached that tipping point where we'd got the market buy-in, it then started to roll. So it paid off in the end from a slow start. You were the first female CEO in 328 years since you took the reins there, I believe. Massive advocate for equality and issues. What was that like? I had always worked in insurance and I started in the London insurance market. So I was actually quite well known. People knew me. I had been an underwriter. I had then gone off and I'd, I'd worked and lived in the US. I'd been in France for a while, in Germany, in Switzerland for many years. The fact that I'd been in the London market in my early career and I'd made, forged many friendships in that time, when I sort of came back to London, at least I was a somewhat known quantity. I had a lot of support and a lot of support certainly by the people within the central corporation of Lloyd's, the board, the council of Lloyd's, very, very supportive at that time, and you need that. But then the biggest challenge is when you want to hire new people, and each one of those you've got to convince, or the market's got to be convinced that they're the right choices that you're making. And then when you have to deliver on a strategy or come up with new strategic plans, new initiatives, You've got to win their trust. That was a bit of a challenge, but I don't think that was anything to do with my gender per se. It was more to do, well, with any new CEO who was going in and wanting to make change. If you go in as a CEO and you keep everything the same, generally people are happy. If you go in and want to change things, you upset people. And you hope that even though you might have upset them at one time, when they see the proof point that you can deliver, you've won them over. Why do you think they chose you? How did that work? You're working at Canopius. I mean, how did you get a call? Well, I was running one of the syndicates, but we were in the process of selling the syndicate to a Japanese company. And therefore, there was a natural time for me to be leaving where I was working. And they were looking for a CEO of Lloyd's. And I believe they were looking very much for someone who'd driven transformation and done big change in the past. And I worked for many years of my career. I worked for GE. And in those days, GE was one of the leading corporations in the world, heavily into digitalization. And I can remember in 2001, I moved to the US and led a massive 
underwriting digitalization project back in 2001 for yeah. GE. So I'd got a lot of experience of doing that on a global scale. I knew the US market very well because I'd lived and worked in there. I had spent time in continental Europe understanding the global reinsurance market very well. I had done insurance market insurance world I'd done life business I'd done I had a lot of experience I think I, I fitted the bill what a fantastic opportunity for Lloyd's to have its first woman CEO come in with ideas and strategies for changes there must have been challenges and for those young women that are coming into the insurance industry today do you think we are moving forward in sort of breaking that old boys club of the insurance industry I think as many things go you'd go two steps forward, one step back. And at the moment, it feels a little bit as though we could be going in a one step back mode in terms of equality. But I know that we're fundamentally on an upward trend here, and things are going to be different for the future. I hear some stories from people at the front end of the business, perhaps younger people, less experienced people, about behaviours and inappropriate comments that are made and all sorts of things. The trouble is when you get more senior in an organisation, you tend to be immune to those comments. You don't really know what's going on at the front end anymore. And you believe that things would have changed. And I know the insurance sector overall has made massive progress when it comes to this inclusivity, this idea that whatever your background is, there's a place for you, you can be treated equally, the right opportunities will be there for you. Sometimes it doesn't feel that to everybody. And I know we've still got some perhaps old style behaviours to crack in order to make it equal for everybody. We've got some work to do. But Overall, the trend is very good. In the past, you've said all female chief executives, we all say we're pretty certain that our successors are going to be men. Yeah, it feels a bit like that. In fact, I got that not really just from in the insurance world at all, but it started off with a Wall Street Journal article, or could have been a Washington Post article, can't remember, a couple of years ago, talking about corporate America, saying that the number of female CEOs was reducing and every time a female CEO left her role, she was replaced by a male. And we saw that also repeat itself a bit in the UK, where as we would have females leaving and they would be replaced by men, and the number of female CEOs in the FTSE 350, so the largest company, listed companies in the UK, hasn't changed in years. Yeah. There is still more, I think, more men called Mark and more men called John as CEOs than women. So I did some research on this, and I was looking at women on boards of publicly traded insurance companies. But I went and I looked at the market, and Fortune have a statistic of the Fortune 1000 companies, 19.8% of board seats are occupied by women. That could change, obviously, on a daily basis, but that's roughly about 20%. The Russell 1000 is about 20% as well as kind of their statistic. Any idea what it's, that percentage is for the publicly traded insurance companies? Do you know, I don't know what it is for publicly traded insurance companies. I know that in the UK for the FTSE 350, of course, we've got the 30% club where we are getting very close now to having 30% representation of females on public listed boards in the UK. But... The gap is in the executive. Yeah. 
No, correct. I mean, so some of the numbers that I've done, I've done some research here, is that globally it appears that about the insurance industry is aligned with the rest of the economy. It's coming at about 20% women on board of director seats. And in the U.S., it's about 20%. In the U.K., it's about 33%, however, mm-hmm. in the boards. Some companies have zero. There are still a few of those. And some companies have even above average of equality. Mm. Um, I don't know if you can think of any off the top of your head, but companies like AXA have a lot. Top Dan- Danmark has... Ah, yeah. well, the Nordics, of course, are quite renowned yeah. for it. Yeah. Yeah. Store brand as well. Mm-hmm. So in those cases, there are more women on boards than men in, in, in certain sectors. Mm-hmm. So, so the insurance industry feels like a bit like we're stuck in the back ages, but the statistics don't show that. What an interesting point. I, because it started at the board level. My mother's Norwegian, and in Norway they put the quota out for boards, uh, for female representation on boards some years ago now at 40%. And while there are all sorts of critics of that approach, and you know, you could debate that for days, I'm sure, um, fundamentally it changed the makeup of boards. And that's a very Nordic aspect. And in the UK, we've started to focus, we start the focus was starting at the board level. But now we are moving down to the executives. Yeah. And that's where we're trying to increase the pipeline. We're looking at female CEOs, we're looking at female C-suite, and not only just in some of those traditional support roles, but actually in the front-end business roles. We've got all sorts of efforts around it. We've, I mean, I would have said there's an absolute explosion in awards, recognising women in tech, women in finance, women in insurance. There's a whole raft of them. And while we might think, oh gosh, you know, isn't it just being flooded and is it going to dilute the impact? I just think we need this at the moment. We need this sort of kick before we can then start to get some balance and then hopefully all operators normally. And maybe by the time I eventually retire from work completely, we won't be talking about this topic at all because it'll just be the norm. Give me some guidance. What more can someone like me as a white male do to ensure equality? Well, there are all sorts of things we can do as individuals. Some of it is around catching our own behaviour because we all fall into the trap of, I don't know, you know, we've got biases, unconscious or conscious, and sometimes we let them slip through. I know sometimes if I'm going to an event and I think, gosh, am I going to see people I like there? Are there going to be any, is there going to be anyone like me? And I sort of roll my eyes thinking, that, oh, gosh, no, they're going to be all so different. And I sort of don't want to go because it's a natural instinct. We want to be with people that are like us. Something resonates. But sometimes we've got to force ourselves to go beyond that. And particularly because the data's all done now. So we know from all the big consulting firms that to be truly innovative and to have a truly sustainable business you need people from diverse backgrounds and you need different genders there different ethnic backgrounds there whatever you know social class they're from we need all of that and there's statistics abound but each and every one of us has a part to play so if we see something a little behavior that we don't think is appropriate we can challenge it in a constructive way we can force situations where if a team's forming around us we call out well why isn't there a face that's not looking like me around this table we can all play our part in this you can mentor younger people you can even 
offer guidance to peer level people. There's all sorts of things we can do together. There are pledges you can make. Go to some of these events. What we found, for instance, was that we launched the Dive In Festival. It's in its fifth year uh, in 2019. And we didn't know how it would go down. It's a celebration of diversity and inclusion. I was very nervous when we first launched it because I thought, gosh, what will people think? But it unleashed conversations that people had never had. And we realized that people were desperate to talk about this stuff. But what we found was that if we were having a session on whatever topic, most of the audience tended to be women who came along. We could hardly get men in the door. Even when we held a special session on International Men's Day for mental health for men. Because in the UK, suicide is the biggest killer of men under 45. Mental health issues are a serious issue for men. And we held a special session for mental health for for men. 70% of the audience were still women. We couldn't get the men to come. Somehow a reluctance maybe to join in a conversation, perhaps a conversation that they were embarrassed to have, fearful to have, they laughed at. So things like that, you can do something like that. You can go along to these events, take people with you, start conversations, because it's not until we understand how other people approach these things and how they think that we can crack this issue. I want to kind of dive into your worldview and, and how that has been shaped since your, since your upbringing. But let's start with your career. Or if you want to go back to, you said, 20, 25 years with Prudential and GE. So how did those years prepare you for what lay ahead? Looking back, I can see it, I suppose, all a bit more clearly now. But when you're in it, you can rarely, rarely tell that something is very important at that time. So a lot of people, when they're going starting out on their career, they're very worried about career decisions, taking this job, that job, will it be the right one? I say, actually, most of the time, it doesn't really matter. For the first 10 years of my life, I was at the Prudential and I was an underwriter in the London insurance market, but sport ruled my life. My career was absolutely secondary to me. And I used to row a lot, so I was always down having practice on the river. And then I got into rugby and I got into playing at premiership level and that ruled my life. So sport was what I was all about. And it wasn't until much later when I changed companies and I got my first promotion to be a manager. And I'd been working for 14 years by then. It wasn't until I got my first promotion where I led a team of three that I started to think about taking my career seriously and working hard. So my point is, however you start, you don't really know how it's going to pan out. But what I did know... And what I realise now, although I didn't at the time, how important talent management was within the company I worked for. I worked for GE. They've always been known for great talent management. And I was part of their talent management programme. My manager, and this was in the 90s, my manager needed to promote women or a woman. And I was on the list. I didn't know, but I was on the list. And he needed to promote me. And I remember I said no when he came along to promote me. I said no, no, I couldn't possibly. I didn't have the confidence. But because he was going to have his bonus affected if he didn't promote a woman, he made damn sure that he gave all the support to me so that actually after a month or so I I said yes to the promotion. So I was the beneficiary of very, very proactive talent management that set targets for ethnic minorities and women way back then. 
So what do you say to women, young women coming up through the insurance industry when they're asked to take on responsibility and they're not quite sure Mm. that they've had the experience to do it? You know, men, we seem to have jump all over that. You know, it's like that idea where it's the job description of 10 requirements. You tick two or three, we're all over it. Whereas Mm. women, you know, you need to tick those 10 plus some to feel comfortable I'm a big advocate. Many times the women is much better have positioned to take on some of these issues and, and, and responsibilities than, than the men. How do we give that opportunity in a way that's constructive to, to women? How do we get more women with that responsibility? Yeah, and it might just take a little bit longer. And I know in the past I've wanted to promote some, some women and they have said no, just like I remember that younger Inga saying no. So I've worked very hard on getting them to say yes. And nearly always when they've said yes and they've started, they go, oh, wow, I like this. Oh, I'm good at this. There is some nervousness of this sort of unknown that can put them off. But we just have to do everything that we can to encourage them. I believe for everybody, and this isn't just for women, we need to make sure that our workplaces have the flexibility to allow all sorts of different types of people to succeed. This culture in some places of feeling that you've got to work sort of 24-7, I think is absolutely the wrong thing and I don't think it's necessary. Now, I say that having gone through some workaholic years of my life and I look back and I go, Inga, can you really say that? And you probably have to at some time in your life really, I don't know, go over and above expectations of time commitment and things like that. But as employers, we should be making sure that the work environment is conducive to all sorts and definitely definitely reward and recognize and promote people based on what they deliver and not how much time they spend in the office you were married in 2013 just before actually coming into lloyd's how did that affect your balance of career and relationship and life personal life Well, by the time I started at Lloyd's, I suppose I'd been working for quite a long time and I had already learned to balance my private life and my work life. Many years ago, I already declared to my team, and I was actually running a team looking at M&A at the time, so we were doing mergers and acquisitions with all sorts of timelines, but I said to them, unless you call me, I will not be working at the weekend. So I will not answer emails, I won't check my emails, etc, etc. And I made it very clear to my team. And that was way back then. And I can tell you it is possible to do. And I've kept to that. So unless there's an absolute deadline, some some requirement, I have made sure that I have that precious time with my friends and family that is separate to my work life. And I've been fairly good and disciplined at that. I want to dive into some of the bigger, difficult situations that you've been able to navigate in your career. So after leaving GE, you moved back to Europe and you took over responsibility for a reinsurance company. And this was in 2006. Six. Mm. And this reinsurance company was going through some issues at the time. Can you tell us a little about what situation you were facing and why they chose you to kind of come in and and face those situations. Yeah, the company was Converium and it had been called Zurich Re and it had been spun off outside of the Zurich group some years before, but had let, I don't know, sort of not had total control over its US reserves. 
and some casualty issues had come along. And fundamentally, the company had been downgraded, the CEO had been let go. And by the time they approached me to come in as CEO, they had been without a CEO for a year, they'd brought in one of the retired board members to be an, an interim CEO. And so they'd just been sort of trying to steer this company. It had lost a lot of business, the market cap had been you know, just demolished. Shareholders were very, very unhappy. Some clients were being very loyal and staying, but a lot of some offices had been closed. People had had to be let go. And they had been hunting for a CEO for a while. Now, the only reason, not the only reason, but I suppose one of the main reasons I joined was because at that time, GE had sold its business to Swiss Re. And I had the uncertainty of going into a totally new culture, big organization but totally new culture and I had the opportunity of taking this on which was CEO of a publicly listed company I'd never run a publicly listed company before but I had the opportunity of doing this and potentially turning the company around and having huge success and I chose to do the Converium role and I moved to Zurich in Switzerland and started the adventure first of all Again, as often, you have to hire some good people. So I changed some people. I changed half the management team. I brought some people in that I'd worked with over the years and I had trusted relationships and I knew what they could deliver. And I persuaded them to come in and join this company. And within a year, we doubled the market cap. We'd got ratings back from the from the rating agencies. We'd kept a lot of business. We were growing. We had a good strategy. And it was a wonderful success story. But a lot of what I did was just, you know, basic good business sense. Put a strategy together, include your employees, talk and talk and talk to lots of stakeholders. I was in the media a lot, you know, trying to get a very positive story about there, out there about Converium. And one thing about Converium is that a lot of the shareholders were Swiss and they felt quite loyal towards this company and so I managed to after many many meetings persuade a lot of the investors to stay with us you know and support us. So let's talk about putting a strategy together so you came in you looked at the situation that the company the cards it was dealt as a CEO how do you begin setting strategy? Obviously what we had but we looked at the opportunity out there in the world And we also took some tough decisions, such as closing some businesses that we didn't think were viable. And that, when you do a strategy, of course, that's not a great part of a strategy, is it? Because actually, you you know, you tend to want to grow and you want to do new things. But part of that decisioning then was we knew that that was keeping us back. In other words, the rating agencies weren't happy, investors weren't happy that we had a big US portfolio. So we actually sold that. I sold that to Berkshire Hathaway. That was a big part of it, was actually determining what was no longer going to be part of our ongoing portfolio. And then we looked at the markets we wanted to play in, where we had strengths. So we didn't look at that time, and it's different for businesses depending where they are in their cycle. But for that company at that time, it wasn't about going after new, new markets. It was about consolidating on our strengths. And anywhere where we had a good foothold, going in and working those markets, so those very traditional markets where Convivium was very strong, which were specialty areas, it was in Asia, it was in the heart of Europe, quite a bit of London market business. Then we worked on our talent because your people, I mean, you can't deliver any of it without people. So we wanted a clear people strategy. 
We were quite, we were moving people around, we were changing the organisation, we were upskilling as much as we could. We looked at our distribution partners. There was a split model. Some business was done directly with clients, some was done via brokers. We made clear strategies, we made pledges to brokers. So you had a whole marketing effort. We reinforced the communications and had a completely dedicated team. I think the reason that strategy worked and the reason we turned the company around was, I would have said, because of the people. We've talked a lot about setting strategy and and making bold decisions. And I think I really respect the fact that you do make bold decisions and you get the team around going ahead. But we probably both know not everything always goes away and failure is sometimes par for the course. What are some of the bigger failures that you've had to tackle? The Converium story, while it was fantastic in that we did the turnaround, what happened then... Because we took our eye off the ball of what was happening with the shareholding, because we were so excited about our new strategy and so excited that the share price was going up and up and up, we lost sight of what was going on. And overnight, suddenly, there was a hostile bid on the company because some shareholders had got together. They'd launched a a hostile bid. That was a complete shock. We weren't expecting it. I thought my whole life had come to an end because I'd brought this thing back to life. It was about to be taken away from me. That was how I saw it. But we decided that we would actually fight. And that was a very difficult situation. We fought for months to fend off this bid. That was where I had to learn all about being on doing live TV interviews and getting out there in the media like I'd never experienced before. And that was a very testing time. And What I also learned there was how you had to communicate constantly to all your people, not only your customers, your clients, your brokers, the market. You had to communicate importantly with your employees because they are feeling so vulnerable and they don't know which direction you've got to go in. And even if you don't know the answers, you've got to be out there communicating. I mean, I soon learned that there was probably more communication I could have done quicker if I'd known about it or experienced it before. And so coming in based off of that experience, you went to Canopius next? No, I went to the Zurich group. Okay. Yeah. And so talk to us about that role and and why you went over there. Yes. So because Comberium had been spun out of the Zurich group, I knew the CEO of Zurich Insurance, Jim Shearer at the time. Tragically, he died shortly after he retired from the Zurich group, which was very sad. He was a very visionary, inspirational leader. And I'd got to know him while I was at Converium. And when Converium, we finally agreed, the board agreed that they would sell the company. He approached me and said, come and look after all the M&A at Zurich. I said, well, you know, I wanted a little bit more than that. And so he tagged on a couple of other things, which was the internal consulting team and what was called the Zurich Way, which was the massive transformation program, the global transformation program for the Zurich group. And he gave me those three things to look after. And that was enough to persuade me, even though I'd been a CEO of a public listed company, to join the executive team of a big global company. And I did miss being CEO a bit, but I was part of a a very successful organisation that I enjoyed. Let's talk about that transformation. You know, as with the consolidation in the market today, balance sheets scale seems to be winning and we'll see a lot more balance sheets 
grow much bigger through acquisitions and inorganic growth. With that comes huge amounts of transformational processes. We talked about digital, etc. What does it mean to actually run a transformational mm. program? Just like, at, say, at Lloyd's and the transformation there is you've got to engage people. And the only reason the Zurich Way was successful, and it was delivering, I think by the time I, I left, it was delivering something like $900 million of savings that year. So it was massive because it was taking out all the non-value-added tasks. It was putting teams together. It was reorganizing. And that means people. But I'm afraid not everybody benefits from it. So you also have to make some tough calls. But in my experience, to make the tough calls, to let people go, be as open and honest as you can. Explain the rationale because what people hate is they they want to know why things are being done. And often, as a leader, we underestimate the ability, the knowledge, the intelligence of our employees. You know, and we can dumb things down and, and end up finding that the employees are two steps ahead of us. And I've learned that be out there, be as open and honest as possible, even if you don't have all the right answers. We're seeing a lot of strategic plans and transformational processes of carriers. And I think with the acceleration of technology and the changing consumer landscape, we're going to see a lot more. What advice do you have to CEOs out there thinking about needing a transformation? Make sure you've got the right people. You need people who want to think differently. You need people who are not afraid to challenge the norm. You need people who are not protecting something so much that they're not going to put themselves out of a job. And I remember at the Zurich Way, I realised that the programme had come to its sort of bit of a natural end. And I can remember going to the CEO saying, do you know, I think we've got to finish this programme next year. And I knew that I was going to be putting myself out of a job but I also sense that these things have a certain life cycle and I think it had been going for perhaps eight years by then or something like that and it needed to come to an end and there needed to be something new and you need to have people who are absolutely prepared to do that and they're not protecting their own universe their own patch you know you've got to have um, really open-minded creative people where do you find these people because it seems like it's from outside the company. Well, it very often is because people get comfortable in a company. Yeah. And there's nothing bad about that, about bringing people in with new ideas. I remember years and years ago about being challenged by someone in GE, a risk manager who'd come in from the credit card business or something. And they said, these contract wordings. So you don't even know your contract. You know, you don't have the certain language of your contract before contract insets you know and then of course we have you know 9-11 come along and it exposed this this huge flaw in our industry where you can actually have contracts incepting and you haven't even solved the actual language of the policy and you haven't committed and signed it but I can remember being challenged on that way before 9-11 someone coming in saying so you you don't necessarily have that contract signed before it says and of course they come in and you go well, yeah, that's how, it, that's how it works. I mean, how ridiculous when you look back. It's an absolutely absurd situation and we still haven't really nailed it completely in insurance. But it was, took somebody to come in from the outside and say, that's nuts. You know, you should do something. But the insurance industry today is using a plethora of buzzwords. Artificial intelligence, data science, you know, machine learning. And 
how close are we to even thinking about these, let alone actually actioning? There is a lot going on. There is, but it's it's not come together in a whole model yet. So it's doing pieces. And I think there will be a time when it does all join up and come together. And some of this can be scary. I mean, for someone like me, who when I started, we didn't have computers. It can be a scary world to think that everything now has to be revolving around tech. But I firmly believe it does. I mean, it really, really does. And we shouldn't be scared of it. But some of us will need upskilling and some of us will need Somebody will need to be patient with us so that we can understand how it can be used. But at the moment, it's still just doing little bits around the edges, but it will all join up before too long, I'm, I'm convinced. I've done some research in the past about the R&D spending of the insurance industry versus the rest of the economy, and the insurance industry lags far behind. How much budget should an insurance company really mm. be spending on technology and R&D and, and new pro- projects? Well, I don't know. When I was at GE, what happened at GE, it was a very interesting case study back then. And I know it's in a different state at the moment, but it had got very controlled and it had lost its innovation. And they launched a campaign called Imagination at Work. And I think it, it might still be going today. And they then said to all their businesses around the world, we're basically going to let you play with about 10% of your budget. And this was revolutionary because they'd kept such a tight control over everything. But they said, no, 90% of everything you do is going to be really ultra-controlled and done in the old way. But we're going to allow you to play, potentially, with 10% of your budget. And my guess is anyone who... I mean, I don't think anybody would spend something like 10% on doing new innovative stuff and investing in the future. But my guess is it's got to be something like that. Otherwise, you're really not going to make any difference. And so when you were running your companies that you had in the past, what did you do with your teams around budgeting and, and, and R&D spend? Oh, I just had a really tough CFO who, who monitored all of that. But we were also in a different place. I mean, technology was not the, the big opportunity then as it is now. I think it's only in the relatively recent past that tech is fundamentally changing. When I think about, you know, the fact that people want to hire data scientists now, and a few years ago, we didn't know what a data scientist was. So it wasn't in our language, in our job profiles, you know. This has all happened fairly recently. And we've just got to embrace it. And the other thing I think about technology is that people are worried about it because of what it will do to jobs. And I hear lots of people saying, oh, these jobs are going to disappear. No, they're not. They're going to be just new ones. Mm -hmm. Jobs will be there. The tech industry has created so many new jobs. And I believe globally, we're at the highest employment we've ever been. So why is technology being disrupting jobs? Well, it's been changing jobs. But it's not going to be eliminating. We're just going to have to completely reskill. So technology on the expense of the insurance company is happening in two areas. One is the acquisition of the customer and two is the internal costs of running that and servicing the business. You know, even today, Lloyd's is talking about reducing the expense of Lloyd's from around 40 cents on the dollar, which is an incredibly high cost compared to other industries. But... If you were able to make Lloyd's more f- efficient using technology, you're going from $0.40 cents a dollar down to $0.35 cents a dollar, right? You're, you're living $0.05. Cents. But that's still 20 to $0.30 cents on the dollar that's controlled by distribution, mm-hmm. customer acquisition. Is that sustainable? 
How is that going to change? Well, I think people fundamentally think it's not long-term sustainable to have that sort of cost in the distribution space. But this is why you've got it all merging. You've got distributors getting into more of the underwriting arena and having delegated authority from carriers. So it's all going to start sort of merging a bit, isn't it? And that's how I see it. And this delineation between, you know, reinsurance, insurance, intermediaries, service providers. I mean, more and more of the the tech innovation that's going on is in the service space as well. Distribution is a big piece, but service space. Now, what I'm fearful of is that people are going to use these external services, but they're not going to make the cuts they need to internally. So they'll keep increasing the cost because I haven't seen any of this tech yet fundamentally take cost out because it seems to pop up somewhere else. Exactly right. And so here we are spending millions and millions or billions of dollars a year on building technology, but the expense ratio is staying the same. Hmm. But that's because all these new partners come up. You know, there isn't, hasn't been that big disruptor who's fundamentally taken a big chunk out. And who is that disruptor? At the moment, I don't see anyone doing it at scale that's going to fundamentally disrupt it. But if you go to new markets, you realise... And this is not your big commercial stuff that Lloyd's does. But if you go to Africa and you realize that they can buy an insurance policy on their mobile device and the entire policy is such simple text that it's almost visible on one screen, you realize we, the mature markets, are way behind. Because we're not in that place yet. And other places are just doing it. They're doing it with technology. And big data, the idea that you won't be making claims in the traditional way because the data will already have been sourced by a carrier or whoever's managing the exposure and you'll have already had the money paid to you before you've even known you've had a claim and all this. I mean, this is really going to fundamentally change our sector, our industry. I think, you know, what about this idea that the role of broker, you know, I'm a big advocate for them being responsible for a lot of the innovation but, you know, it's the access to the customer around the innovation because how can you innovate without having that conversation? Mm. But I think more and more people are realising the customer has to be in the conversation. If I go back some years ago at Lloyd's, the Lloyd's underwriter rarely met the customer. They met the broker. But that has changed and it changed some years ago, whereas it's, you know, you've got the three parties sitting around and everybody realises that it's essential to have those conversations together. And that's happening more and more in product innovation. I mean, I've thought about that, but who who is Lloyd's customer? Is it the broker markets or is well, it the end customer? So to me, there's only one customer and that's the person who's got money to pay for a product. So I think that gives you the answer as to who the customer is. Okay. <laughs> with anything you're selling yeah let's talk about the Lloyd's Lab and InsureTech uh, because there's a ton of money being poured into this space what are your impressions so far of the work that's being done and it's is it going to be material in the expense of acquiring customers or what about the underwriting side of the business as well and reducing the loss cost yeah I think it's going to do both it's going to definitely be in the understanding risk, pricing risk, 
being much smarter about pricing risk and in the actual underwriting. But it's also going to be on the delivery. And I, I hope, and I don't know the details, but I hope that there'll be a lot around the, the actual claims side of it, because that was one of the things that we decided to cut out when we did the huge modernization of the Lloyd's market, was we had to make some decisions and we said claims is going to be second phase, which somehow you know went against the grain because that is what you're delivering for your customer. But we had to get some of the basic core processes right before we could then start digitizing the claims. My hope is that a lot of the, the tech is going to be around that delivery to the customer, making it more seamless and, and quicker. You've obviously had a huge wealth of experience in the insurance industry. You've really seen the challenges as well as the opportunities that are available within this industry. If, if you were going to spend the next five, six, ten years of your life dedicated to solving a particular problem within this industry, what would it be? Sort out how we can provide certainty of protection. I think that's our biggest... Product development. Potential downfall, yeah. And so how would you go about doing that? I don't know. I have to get the right people around me. It's not going to be me. But if I can stir somebody into nailing this, and I think it comes down to, you know, your Kodak moment, what was Kodak in the business of? It thought it was, what, producing photographs rather than perhaps capturing memories. And this is what we've got to be aware of for our core product what we're doing what are we doing what are we providing for that future how are we going to enable human progress way into the future is it going to require a force from outside the insurance industry i hope that by encouraging all the innovation like many insurers are we can home grow it we've got to move quickly but you've said it before we actually sometimes trip over our own shoelaces here. We do, because there are many vested interests. But this is why you've got to create these environments that encourage people from outside to come in and challenge us. So are you thinking about getting back in the saddle somewhere? No. I'm going to move into uh, a more leisurely, non-executive career now. And maybe potentially working on some of these problems around tech? Yeah, I mean, sure. Getting involved in some tech development and hopefully not saying goodbye to insurance altogether. I would love to be involved in some way, but it's not going to be in a full-time executive role. So looking back, how are you going to measure the success of your career, but also the success of your life? I don't know whether I really need to. I already feel that I'm enjoying my life. I don't feel frustrated. And I don't think anybody should. Life is, is for living. We don't all have to have left legacies that we're actually aware of while we're living because often we talk about people once they're gone and your legacy will live on way beyond our life on this earth and it doesn't it's not something that worries me how do you advise future leaders of the insurance industry but also current leaders to make better decisions you've been in very particular difficult situations in your career and you've had to make a few bold decisions have you felt like you've always been as bold as you should have been? I wasn't bold early on in my career, but the more difficult decisions you make, the easier it can be to make difficult decisions. It's like anything, when you practice enough, it becomes easier. But the critical thing for anyone is make sure you listen 
listen and listen. We don't know the answers ourselves. We have to involve and include others and listen to them. Thank you for your time today, Inga. Thank you. Appreciate it.